0: This is our second study of John chapter 5, and we have one more in the week to come. But now I would like to call your attention to verses 19 through 29. So here now as our Lord speaks. So Jesus said to them, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing.' Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you praise and thanks that you speak so powerfully and clearly through your word, that it is your truth, and that these are not the words of man, but they are the very words of God. And so we ask that the same spirit that inspired them would illuminate our minds so that we might hear them. And live. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. If you were with us last week, we began our study in John chapter 5 with the healing of a man who was lame for 38 years. A remarkable healing, to be sure, but it was a miracle that was rejected by the Jews. Why? Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Uh, yet at that point, it was nothing more than a routine Sabbath violation case for them to litigate. Jesus was working on the Sabbath. A man picked up his mat and, and worked on the Sabbath. Uh, but you might remember that it was Jesus' justification for his working uh, that caused a big stir among the Jews. It's what turned it from a routine Sabbath violation case into a high-profile blasphemy case. You might remember what he says in verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. It's not a Sabbath issue. It's an issue related to Jesus's claim to be the son of God and and by being the son of God, making himself equal with God. This is no small claim after all. Uh, the Jews had been trained from Deuteronomy 6.4 quite clearly that the Lord had said that there is only one God. And so here comes a man from Nazareth claiming to be the son of God, that he is working on the Sabbath because his father is working on the Sabbath. And so it is no wonder why the Jews are saying this man is calling God his own father. How dare he? Now we have to keep in mind Jesus isn't the only man who ever claimed to be God incarnate. Some of you probably remember the name Jim Jones, who claimed to be God, and there is no one else. He amassed thousands of followers to himself and took them down to South America and called upon his followers to drink cyanide-laced Powerade. It was in the 90s that a man named Marshall Applewhite, perhaps you know that name as well, claimed to be the second coming of the Son of God, and that the only way for his followers to get into heaven was by waiting in a spaceship as a comet passed by the earth with Nike shoes on and a few dollars in their pocket, and they had to take their own lives in order to get to heaven. And while many have made such Outrageous claims in human history, those are only but two. There is only one who could back up such a claim of eternal divinity, of being the Son of the Father. Perhaps some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's argument, the Lord, lunatic, or liar argument, that if someone was to come across the Gospels and read Jesus' own words, They could not possibly take away that Jesus merely claimed to be a prophet, or a good teacher, or a moral exemplar. You can't possibly even read John chapter 5 and come away with that conclusion. Either he's lying, saying that he is God and he is indeed not, or maybe he's a lunatic, that he has deceived himself into believing that he is God, or the truth is that he is Lord. Lord. And that's what I want you to see uh, this morning, because John 5 is proof of that very truth. Uh, John 5, in three different ways, uh, it's as if, if Jesus is calling three witnesses to the stand uh, to proclaim his authority as the Son of the Father. First, it was the miracle that we saw last week, and uh, that he has the power to uh, give healed legs to a man who was lame. And in this text, it uh, Jesus calls his Father to the stand as the Father bears witness that this is the Son of God. And then next week we'll find that Jesus calls the very witness of the Scriptures to testify that he is the eternal Lord of the universe. But in our text this morning, I want you to focus on verse 23 because that's the simple point. And there's three ways that this gets worked out. But verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That's the burden of the message that Jesus is proclaiming. And it's the question that I want to put before every one of you here this morning. Have you honored the Son? That's the only question that matters for every person, young and old. Have you given honor to the Son of God in order to give you confidence that he is worthy of all glory, honor, And praise, I want to call your attention to the the authority of the Son to claim that honor. So first, we want to look at the Son's authority in divine activity. Jesus has good authority to claim equality with God because he is united in the same will of the Father. Look again at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. But only what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The church father Augustine, at least this was attributed to him, uh, that he said once that the Gospel of John is deep enough for elephants to swim, uh, yet shallow enough for children to not drown. And that's a truth I think you find often in John's Gospel. Even the best of theologians can come to texts like this one. And be amazed, marvel at the sheer depth of the Trinitarian theology that's presented here, at the mysteries of the relations between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And yet, it's explained in the simplest of terms that even a child can understand. One God, three persons. And that's something what we see in this first verse in 19. What Jesus is doing is speaking by way of analogy. That he does whatever he sees the father doing. Perhaps a helpful way to understand this is, back in those days, it's not so much anymore that the father would pass on the tools of his trade to his son. If he was a farmer, he would teach his son how to farm. All of the, the skills that are required in agriculture. And the way that this often gets worked out today, I suppose, is that the hobbies of the father are oftentimes passed down to the son You know, I ask myself, why do I like fishing? Why do I like golfing? Well, these are things that my dad uh, would always do uh, when I was growing up. And yet this analogy uh, breaks down because Jesus is saying that he does nothing outside of the Father's will. He does nothing out of his own accord. He does only what his Father is doing there's a term that theologians have given to this reality called inseparable operations. It's the truth that there is one united will in God, that the Trinity isn't composed of three separate beings all doing whatever they wish to do, that the Father does something one day, the Son does another thing. No, they are united in the same will. A great example of of this that you see is in the act of creation. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all active in that event of creation. The Father speaks the word through his Son, uh, creating all things, bringing all things into existence. And then you see even the Spirit hovering over the waters as that affecting agent of creation. So therefore, when Jesus says, my Father is working until now and I am working, he says this, on good authority because they are united in the same will. When the Father acts, the Son acts. And notice also that the Father and Son are united in love. Verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. In greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. I wonder if you've ever meditated or given a close examination and thought to the love that the Father has for the Son. It's a great mystery. I think we oftentimes think about God's love for us and our love back to Him. But there is a marvelous truth in the Scriptures that speaks quite often about the Father's infinite and eternal love for the Son and vice versa. Augustine was once asked, and again, I think this was just attributed to him. I don't think he actually ever said this. But he was once asked, what did God do before he made heaven and earth? And he quipped back in his um, kind of humor saying he was preparing hell for those who dare ask such questions. (laughs) And while this is said to comically evade the question, the scriptures do not leave us in the darkness about what God did before he created the worlds. Before the foundations of the worlds, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit shared the most blessed, glorious, and loving communion with one another. The Father eternally and without measure loved his Son, and the Son is that darling of heaven, and that is the apple of the Father's eye. This is a communion of perfect love, self-giving, self-sufficient. But as you will notice towards the end of verse 20, Jesus is speaking about greater works that flow out of this love that the Father has for the Son. The Father is going to show him all that he is doing, and greater works than these he will show him. Greater works than even what we saw in the preceding section of Scripture. Uh, Greater works than even healing a man who was lame for 38 years. Greater works than uh, bringing life out of, of death, even for that official's child. But the second thing I want you to see is that very work of giving life. Jesus speaks about his authority to give life. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. There was a saying at the time of the rabbis that went like this Three keys are in the hand of God, and they are not given into the hand of any agent namely, that of rain, that of the womb, and that of the raising of the dead. Jesus calls God his own Father. He claims perfect union with God in divine activity. And here he says, I have the power to give life to whom I will. Surely you couldn't get a clearer declaration of divinity than this. Only God can claim resurrection power. No man on this earth can say that I bring forth life out of death. And that only belongs to God. We'll come back to verses 22 and 23 in a moment, but jump down to verse 24 as he continues speaking about his authority to give life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, has, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus is saying, my word has resurrection power. All I need to do, as we'll see in a few chapters with the story of Lazarus, all he has to do is say, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus gets out of the grave. But I hope you Notice the tenses of these two verses. Whoever hears my word and believes does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Past tense, right? And then again, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Future tense. Jesus is saying, those who hear my voice in this life and believe my word have already passed from death to life. A spiritual rebirth has taken place. A resurrection, if you will, has occurred in uh, someone's soul. And that's the truth that we saw expressed with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that Jesus comes to Nicodemus and says, you must be born again. Of course, speaking of that spiritual rebirth, when God opens up the eyes, when he takes ears that were formerly unable to hear and makes them hear. When he takes a heart of stone and brings it as a heart of flesh, he gives new life, regeneration, resurrection power. And if you're in here this morning and you have believed in the eternal word of Christ, that is the power that is at work within you. A rebirth has taken place. The old has passed, but the new has come. You know, there's a, a story about George Whitfield that I also don't think is necessarily a real account. I have three of them already for you, uh, but they are uh, good stories nonetheless. But uh, a friend came to George Whitfield, and George Whitfield was a um, preacher in the 18th century of that Great Awakening, and he preached to thousands and preached many sermons all throughout the colonial uh, colonial America at the time. And his friend came to him and said, "Why do you always preach?" You must be born again. Because George Whitfield often preached, you must be born again. And so when his friend asked him, why do you always preach, you must be born again? George Whitfield responded, because you must be born again. <laughs> For humanity, who is dead in their sins, with no ability to do anything good in the eyes of God. Now, this is the truth that you must hear. You must hear the word of Christ, who has the authority to give life to dead souls. He can bring that transformation. But I want you to see also that there's a future resurrection that awaits. It's present now. Jesus says the hour is now here. It's present in his uh, very life and being. But it will be fully experienced, as Jesus says, that there will come a day when uh, the dead in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth uh, with resurrection power. And Jesus is saying that I will issue forth another word, just like I did with that word to give you life in this present life. I will bring forth another word, and you will get up from the tomb and walk. Uh, What a bold claim. Jesus is making. I have the authority to give life to whom I will. Uh, But notice the source of this claim in verse 26. Jesus is taking us once again into the deep, deep waters of the Trinity when he says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Uh, Now pause and consider this for a moment. The Father has life in himself. What does that mean, that the Father has life in himself? Well, it means that he is not dependent on anything else or anyone else for his existence. For God to be God means that he lives, that he exists. Theologians call this term aseity of God, meaning that he is self-originated. Now, kids, uh, maybe a helpful way to think about this is back in Exodus chapter 3 with Moses. Do you remember what Moses saw when he was out in the wilderness? It was that bush that was burning. Kept burning and burning and burning, yet was never consumed. What was the picture that was meant to be conveyed to Moses there? But that God is that self-originating fire that keeps burning and burning and burning, never had a beginning, never depends on anything else will always exist. The Father has life in Himself. But notice what He says next. The Father has life in Himself and has granted the Son to have life in Himself. And that's the real mystery here in this passage. And that same non-dependent, never-starting, never-ending life is granted to the Son of God. And this is what sets Jesus as the Son of God apart from all other sons of God that we find in the Scriptures. Perhaps you might know that Adam is called the Son of God. Angels are oftentimes called the Son of God. Even Christians are called sons and daughters of God. Yet when Jesus says this, he is saying something very, very different. That he is the only begotten Son of God. is the only unique Son of God. Now, of course, uh, this is something that is entirely different uh, than what the Arians of old believed, or perhaps even the Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses down the street when Jesus is saying the Father has life in himself and he has granted the Son to have life in himself. When we confess Christ as the Son of God, we are saying that he is God of God Light of life. Now, from all eternity, the Father has communicated this one simple, undivided essence of divinity to His Son. There was never a beginning to it. Now, theologians call this eternal generation. That the Son is the Son of the Father. The Father has life in Himself. And he has granted the Son to have life in Himself. And this is why He has authority to wake Dead souls and call forth the dead from their graves. The Son has the authority to give life. But then, lastly, I want you to see the Son is given authority to judge the living and the dead. Some of you are in workplaces where delegation frequently happens. You're either on one side or the other of it. Either you are the one delegating to your employees, or you have a boss delegating to his or her tasks to you. Occasionally in the youth group, we have a Sunday school class where I will have a group of students get together and work on answering some questions from a biblical text or something like that. And they will delegate to one leader to be the spokesperson for the rest of the group. And what we see here in this next portion is divine delegation of judgment. Judgment. And Christ receives this divine delegation. Look at verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And again in verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. In order to demonstrate his divine authority as the judge, Jesus pulls this familiar title from Daniel chapter 7. He says that he is the son of man who has been given by the ancient of days. Perhaps you remember that a story from months ago, that the son of man has been given authority by the ancient of days and that this authority includes a dominion, a glory, a kingdom that all peoples and nations and tongues should serve him. So Jesus is saying that my father has given me the authority to judge the world. He's saying that this is my eternal inheritance. we just sang this in Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance. The son is the one who gives eternal life. But he's also the one who judges the nations. He will rule the nations with an iron scepter. I wonder if your theology of Christ has room for him being the God who gives life, but also the God who judges. The Son of God is given that authority. And he's saying simply, his argument is that all will honor the Son because of this judgment. It's that same truth that we see in Philippians chapter 2, that he has been given the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's a truth that we often confess that we did even just a few moments ago in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus, the Son of God, will come from the right hand of God to judge the living and the dead. You couldn't get any higher authority or a title of, of greater preeminence than that of judge of all men. And Jesus has given that authority, the authority to call forth men and women from the grave and call them to give an account for their lives. He is one with the Father. He has the authority to give life. He has the authority to judge. But I want to return for the remaining few moments of our time this morning to the heart of this text in verse 23 and ask it again. Have you honored this son? Have you believed in his word and passed from death to life? Have you made that confession of doubting Thomas, my Lord and my God? Because that is the question that matters. And if you have answered that in the affirmative, Uh, Jesus would have two things for you. Uh, He would have you marvel at one thing and not marvel at another thing. I'll show you that again here in the text. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Greater works than healing a man who was crippled for 38 years. Greater works than a... Official son being brought from death. Greater works than turning water into wine? Yes. For it was the eternal and shared will of our triune God to show greater works than these. The Father would send his darling of heaven, the one whom his soul is well pleased, the beloved of the Father. He has sent him into this world to take on the wrath and the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And perhaps you remember maybe even from Romans chapter 1 of that Trinitarian shape of our salvation. He was declared to be the Son of God by the Spirit of holiness in his resurrection from the dead. These are the greater works that Jesus would show that we might marvel. And I think there is something great and glorious to marvel here in what the Son has indeed done by bringing us into the fold, by bringing us out of death into life. Should we not marvel that the Son of God has not only just brought us into just any eternal life, meaning just the length of life, but it's that eternal life of fellowship, of love, of blessing and communion with the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what makes our salvation so glorious? That Jesus has brought us into the very heart and soul of God, and that we have that same fellowship, that same communion with the Father that he had for all eternity, and that we, being united to him, he has entered us into the holy places so that we have that same blessing, life, joy, and peace that was shared for all eternity. And Jesus will tell his disciples this later in the gospel when he says to them that the servants don't know the will of the master. But Jesus says, I have called you friends and so that you might know everything that the Father has made known to me. He has brought us in to this eternal life. What is eternal life? But to know God the Father and him who he sent. And there are mysterious depths to the Trinity that we've seen in this text. But are they not marvelous that God has brought us into such a fellowship? And so that's something for us to marvel at. But I also want you to see what Jesus is telling us to not marvel at, that we need not marvel at the day of judgment. Look at verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this for an hour, Is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Friends, we will all find ourselves in the place that Jesus is talking about unless he returns, and that we will all find ourselves one day in tombs, in graves, and that death is a certainty and that we need to reckon with daily, and that we can't escape it. But Jesus would have us have the equal certainty about what that day will be like when he calls forth the dead from the grave. He would have us have certainty about the resurrection that awaits us. What Jesus is saying here, won't it be a joy for those who have trusted the good shepherd who have listened to the good shepherd all their lives, to be waiting in the grave and to hear his voice come forth. That's what awaits. We don't have to be surprised by that because that's the truth and the assurance that John wants every one of us to have if we have honored the Son of God, that that day will be a glorious day and that we need not fear it because we will enter into our master's rest But if you're in here today and you haven't honored the son, you haven't believed in his name, you haven't trusted in his forgiveness, this text from the lips of Jesus, that couldn't be clearer. It's plain and simple that you will one day marvel that the one you've rejected all of your life is now sitting over you as judge. And on that day, If you have not trusted in him, you will have no escape with the Father, for this is his beloved Son. You will not have any escape with the Holy Spirit, because the Spirit has already testified concerning this judgment. But you will receive that eternal judgment and punishment that you deserve. And I want you to know that when Jesus is saying that those who have done good enter into the resurrection of life and those who have done bad enter into the resurrection of judgment, what he's not saying is that those who have done mostly good things will make it in, or those who have done the really bad things won't make it in. But what he will call to your attention, what you will be held accountable for, is that very question Have you honored the Son? Have you bowed down before him? And the good news of the gospel comes to you today in verse 24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you don't know Christ, this can be yours today. This must be yours today. He has the authority to give you life. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed give you praise that you have exalted this Son as a Savior and Lord above all creation and that we will one day bow and confess that he is Lord to your eternal glory. And Lord, we ask that we would Uh, not only honor the Son by our confession, but uh, by our very lives, and that we would indeed find joy in the fellowship that you have brought us into, and that we would walk in holiness, that we would uh, represent him well in this world, and to his eternal praise and glory. And we pray this in his name. Amen.